Uh, so this morning, as has been mentioned, we're jumping back into our series in the book of Exodus. If you're new with us, uh, we started this series back in the fall of uh, 22. And so we've been going through this series a bit at a time. We've taken a chunk at a time, and then we'll, we'll kind of go through some other series and come back. And so over the next eight weeks, we are in the home stretch. So we're going to finish out the book uh, over the next two months, covering chapters 25 through 40. So it's going to be a, a fun time. Let me just do a quick recap just to kind of catch us up where we are in the story. Real central to the book of Exodus is this theme of God rescuing and redeeming a people so that then they would dwell with him, live with him, and be a holy people. So after 430 years of slavery in Egypt, God powerfully comes and uses Moses to deliver the people of Israel out of slavery to Egypt, and he brings them out, and he brings them into the wilderness and leads them through the wilderness. And then he brings them to a mountain, and at this mountain, God makes a covenant with them. He goes and enters into covenant relationship with them. He gives them his word. We, we saw this uh, last fall with the Ten Commandments, and he descends down to meet the people, in particular Moses. He comes down on a mountain, and he sets a mountain on fire. I mean, just think about that for a second, like a mountain on fire. Like, this is what the presence of the Lord does. And he enters into covenant with them gives them his word, says, this is what it means to be my holy people. This is my word that's going to shape you in righteousness, in goodness, in truth, in holiness. And so I included the end of chapter 24 uh, in the reading just as a way to sort of catch us up. Like in a, you know, when you watch a TV show, it gives you a little bit of a recap. And so this is a little like last time on Exodus, the Desert Chronicles, Moses went up on a mountain. And so God calls him up on the mountain again, and he enters into the cloud, the glory cloud. He enters into the presence of God. And the Lord says, I'm going to give you the tablets that the covenant is going to be on. So God writes the Ten Commandments on a tablet for his people. He writes his word down for his people, and he's going to give those to Moses. But he's going to also give them him something else, and that's where our story picks up here in chapter 25. This is what the Lord tells Moses. The Lord spoke to Moses, tell the Israelites to take an offering for me. You are to take my offering from everyone who is willing to give. This is the offering you are to receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, fine linen and goat hair, ram skins dyed and fine leather, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx, along with other gemstones for mounting on the ephod and breastplate. So the Lord instructs Moses to take up an offering of the most valuable building materials that you have. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, fine linen, goat hair. This is the clothing and colors of royalty. So everyone who's willing to give, gather up all these building materials, all these precious stones and precious materials and what is all of this for? It's for a house. It's for a tabernacle. As the Lord says in verses 8 and 9, they are to make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. You must make it according to all that I show you, the pattern of the tabernacle as well as the pattern of all its furnishings. The Lord is going to give them instructions to make a dwelling place for him. Now, now, the word sanctuary here in the Hebrew, it literally means a holy place. You are to make a holy place. 
so that I may dwell with you. You are to make a place set aside, distinct, unique for me. Now, a a tabernacle is kind of a simple concept. It's basically a portable temple. You just set up and you tear it down. But it's not just a tabernacle. It's not just a place of worship. I think when we think of tabernacle, those of you that are familiar with the Bible, we think of this was this sort of portable worship location. But it's more than that. It's a house. It's a tent, a very fancy tent, but it is a tent. Just as the Israelites lived in tents as they journeyed through the wilderness, these were their homes, the Lord is now going to set a tent. He is going to take up residence. He's going to dwell. The word is also translated abide or settle. The Lord is going to move into their neighborhood, into their subdivision. He's going to dwell with his people. And he is instructing Moses to build this tent, this dwelling, this tabernacle for him. Now catch what's happening here. Up until this point, the Lord had just just descended on a mountain. I mean, it was a big descent, but he had just descended on the mountain and there was sort of a separation between him and the people. Here's what's happening now. The Lord's gonna come down the mountain. He's coming nearer. He's coming down to dwell with them. He's not going to stay on the mountain and send them on their way. No, he's going to come live with his people. And they're to build him a holy place. And here is sort of the ongoing question, one of the tensions in the book of Exodus that we run into pretty much in every section that we have gone through. How can a holy God dwell with a sinful people? How does the high and exalted one, the eternal one who is great and glorious and above all things, how does he dwell with those who are lowly and common and sinful? And we, we intuitively recognize the disconnect when someone high and exalted dwells with someone lowly. Those of you that watched the show Downton Abbey you, you recognize that part of the drama was the interaction between the aristocratic Crowley family and the lower class servants. I mean, this is the plot line for like half the Hallmark Christmas movies, right? He's just a prince who wants to be a regular guy. She's a girl looking for love. And when their worlds collide, can their romance survive Christmas in a castle? Like, I just named like all the plot line for like all those Hallmark movies, right? <laughs> We, we recognize there, there's a disconnect, there's, a, there's an uncomfortability, there, there's incompatibility at times. So there's a tension here. And this is what's interesting about the book of Exodus. This is the tension it brings us into. I think in a lot of ways, we, we can understand and we're, we're rather comfortable with the idea of forgiveness, of redemption, of God providing a way for, to, to wipe away our sins. Like we get that. We're like, yes, that's great where it becomes a little bit more difficult for us to wrap our heads around is this idea of God actually dwelling with us, God in relationship to us, us near to him and him near to us. That's hard, that's difficult for us in many ways. And yet, here's God saying, build a house for me because I am going to dwell with you. But here's the rub in all this. God comes to dwell with his people, not on their terms, not on our terms, but on his terms. God gives instructions to Moses. This is what it is going to look like. You're going to build me a house and here are the instructions that you are to follow. Moses, I'm gonna come and dwell with my people, but it's going to be on my terms. 
Moses is not building the house. The people of Israel are not building their house with their own design in mind. No, God is going to give them the design. He is the designer of his own house. He is the holy architect of his house. So Moses is to instruct the builders there to follow a pattern that the Lord shows them. And so on one level, this is just be obedient. Build my house exactly as I tell you to build my house. But there's something more to this. Hebrews 8.5 gives us a further glimpse into what is happening between the Lord and Moses in Exodus 25. Here's what Hebrews 8.5 states. These, meaning the tabernacle and the furnishings, serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle, for God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. These things, this, this tabernacle that Israel was going to build for the Lord and the, the, the furniture in the tabernacle, these things were copies and shadows of a heavenly reality. Like Moses has shown a heavenly design. The specs are heavenly. Follow the instructions closely because what you are building are heavenly realities. You are copying something heavenly. So be very careful to follow these instructions. What a number of biblical commentators argue is this is what is happening. Moses has come up on the mountain. He's entered into the glory crowd. The presence of God has enveloped this mountain. And so, the Lord, or so Moses is in the presence of God. And what Moses is getting is a glimpse into the throne room of God. He's getting a glimpse into heaven. And so God is showing him, to whatever degree he can, a glimpse of the throne room. And he's now saying, hey, I want you to recreate this on earth. I want you to create structures on earth that are copies and shadows. Not the exact things. Not exact. But they are representations. They are going to point to these heavenly realities. So Moses is getting a glimpse of the eternal of the glorious, and he is intent, and he, he is called on, and calls Israel, and God calls Israel to build based on this design. You see, the tabernacle wasn't any old, just regular tabernacle. The furniture in the tabernacle wasn't just any old furniture. These are these copied, they mirrored, they pictured, they revealed heavenly realities. They were showing the people of Israel something about who God was. The holy and exalted glorious one, he's gonna dwell among his people, yes, but he's gonna do so in a house that displays who he is. The design, the furniture, everything in there is meant to show the people of God who God is and what it means to dwell with him. And the same is for us. Like why do we study this last portion of Exodus, when the worship life that God is establishing for his people, we, we don't follow this. We don't have a tabernacle. We don't, as, as Paige pointed out, we don't sacrifice bulls and goats as we're gonna see here today. We don't have an Ark of the Covenant. But why do we study these things? Because the principle remains. Just as these things reveal to the people of God in the Old Testament who God is and what it means to dwell with him and worship him, when we look at these things, we also learn something about what it means to dwell with God and he with us, what it means to worship him and know him and follow him. And so we are going to take a look, a closer look at the furniture and the tabernacle over the next eight weeks, along with 
some of the misadventures of Israel as they journey through the wilderness. And so we're gonna, we'll look at the tabernacle itself in a few weeks because the instructions don't actually start with the tabernacle. They start with the furniture. And the first piece of furniture that's described is the most important piece in the house, the Ark of the Covenant. And so we don't know exactly what the Ark looked like, but we have sort of rendered sort of close to the instructions that you find in the book of Exodus. And so this is an artistic rendition of what the ark possibly looked like. And in many ways, it follows the the design as much as it is there in Exodus 25. But I'm guessing that when you hear the ark of the covenant, a lot of you are probably thinking this, Indiana Jones and the last crusade and how the ark melted a bunch of Nazi faces at the end. It's a great scene. This is a great movie, but it is not biblical at all. (laughs) It is a cool story, but it is absolute fabrication. There's this line early in the movie where the, the, the people that are hiring Indy are like talking about the ark and they make this comment, yeah, when the Israelites took it into battle, they never lost. And then you know right there that the writers of the movie did not read the Bible because they absolutely did lose when they brought the ark into battle. In fact, they thought that they wouldn't, and God showed them otherwise. So anyway, don't, don't watch Indy for the biblical data. Just watch it, because it's a fun movie. Now, if the ark is not this weapon that melts Nazi faces, what is it? Well, simply put, it is a container. An ark is a container that provides protection and safety. Noah built an ark. He built a ship to provide protection and safety for his family and the animals during the flood. So it's a really simple concept. It's just a a container that's going to provide protection. And at its most basic, the Ark of the Covenant was just a wooden box that was a little bit under four feet long and a little bit over two feet wide and high. Not a very big box, but it is intended to contain, to carry, to protect the tablets that God was going to give Moses, the tablets that contained the covenant, that contained the Ten Commandments. And while it is a simple concept, this box itself is anything but simple. Listen to how it is described. Overlay it with pure gold. Overlay it both inside and out. Make a gold molding all around it. Cast four gold rings for it and place them on its four feet. Two rings on one side and two rings on the other side. Make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark in order to carry the ark with them. The poles are to remain in the rings of the ark. They must not be removed from it. So you take and create a wooden box based on these dimensions and then completely overlay it in gold fasten gold rings, and then take wooden poles and overlay those in gold to carry it. Why all the emphasis on gold? Because gold is the metal of royalty. Gold is the color of royalty. This box is meant to be distinct and unique. It is meant to point something out about who God is. He is royal. He is king. He's not common. He's not lowly. He's of the utmost worth. If you were to try to find a mineral on earth, something of this earth that, that, that sort of pictures the utmost value, what are you going to grab for? Gold. 
And so the very nature of this box is to point to the utmost worth and value of who God is and also what is being carried in it. The very word and covenant of God, the very word by which Israel was going to live, the word that God spoke to them, a word of promise, but also a word that commanded their lives. They were to cherish this. They were to protect it. They were to carry it with them everywhere they went in a box completely covered in gold. So it shows the worth, but it also shows holiness, set-apartness, distinction. Why the poles? Because Israel was never to touch this box in and of itself. In fact, we see this in 2 Samuel 6. When someone does touch it, God strikes them dead. They were to carry it by these poles, never touching it. Why? Why could they not touch this box? Because as we're going to see here, this box represented not only the very presence of God, but the throne of God. Well, let's continue on in the description. In addition to the box itself, the, the top of the box or the lid of the ark, it included a seat. And here's the description of the seat. Make a mercy seat of pure gold, 45 inches long and 27 inches wide. Make two cherubim of gold. Make them of hammered work at the ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherubim at one end and one cherub at the other end. At its two ends, make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat. The cherubim are to have wings spread out above, covering the mercy seat with their wings and are to face one another. The faces of the cherubim should be toward the mercy seat. So if you take another look at the picture, we kind of get an idea. That top section, you have two cherubim, which are angelic figures with their wings up and sort of spread over the mercy seat. They're covering the mercy seat and their eyes are faced towards this mercy seat. Now, what's the significance of cherubim? Angelic beings. Well, the only other mention of a cherubim before this is in Genesis. After Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden because of their sin, God sets a cherubim to, at the front of the entrance to guard anyone who would enter in. And so a cherubim is a being you don't want to fight with. <laughs> Let's put it this way. You don't want to tussle with the cherubim. Probably would scare you to see this giant figure with huge wings carrying a sword. You don't want to tussle. So, so there, there's this sense where these are powerful beings and they serve the Lord. But there's more to it. Listen to what Psalm 99.1 says about the Lord and his relationship to the cherubim. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. So talking about the God, God's kingship and his reigning over all things. He is enthroned between the cherubim. The picture that Psalm 99 gives of the Lord reigning, where is the Lord reigning? Where is he sitting? Where is he enthroned? Between cherubim. He's got cherubim on either side of his throne. Then in 2 Samuel 6, this language is connected to the ark. He, meaning David, and all his troops set out to bring the ark of God from Balea, Judah. The ark bears the name, the name of the Lord of armies who is enthroned between the cherubim. You see the connection. You have two cherubim with their wings spread out, with their faces towards the mercy seat. What is this a picture of? The throne of God. Heavenly copy, heavenly reality being now created here on earth. The throne of God is on top of the ark. Why was Israel not to touch the ark? Because they were not to touch the throne of God. Think of 
if I had like messy hands, if I had dirty hands, and I went up and I touched this brand new pristine white wedding dress, like that would be terrible of me to do. And I just kind of like smeared it and got it messy. Like one, I'm, I'm corrupting it, I'm making it dirty, but two, it is just the utmost disrespectful move on my part. And you consider this, like we can't corrupt the Lord with our sin. But for us who are sinful to think we can touch he who is holy and pure and exalted above all things, to think that we can do that is the utmost pretense. So much so that when that happened, God struck a person dead for it. The ark was holy. It was the throne of God. It was the presence, or the very, the very place where God's presence would meet with the people, where God was going to speak his word and command and lead and reign over his people. Moses would hear from the Lord in front of the mercy seat, in front of the throne of God. So here's what the ark shows us in the construction, in the gold, in the cherubim, in the holiness, in the set-apartness, that God comes to dwell with his people. Yes and amen, that is glorious, that is exciting, that is something that, that is worth celebrating. But when he comes, he doesn't turn down the volume on his holiness. It wasn't if, okay, guys, I'm gonna make myself less holy so I can be near you. No, when he comes down, he comes down with a clear reminder, hey, I'm holy, and I'm king, and you worship me, and you show reverence to me, and you respect the fact that I am holy and you are not. So, so there is this, this sense where God comes in all of his awe, all of his power, all of his glory, all of this, his reign that is represented in the ark here. It reminded Israel of who God was and that he was reigning over them, yes, and he was holy. So the ark emphasizes the holiness of God even as he dwells among his people. Now here's what's challenging in some ways. We struggle, we struggle with this idea of the holiness of God, especially when we think of God dwelling with us. Like if we're talking about just God being like far away and distant, like there's one sense, okay, that's easy to get our head around. Yeah, he's this holy other being that's far away in distance that I don't have to worry about, that has no bearing on my life. And so we can sort of abstractly kind of recognize that. But once we start talking about God getting close and near, when that holiness draws up close, up close and personal to us, that starts, if we take that seriously, we start to get a little bit uncomfortable, maybe a lot uncomfortable. Because as that holiness draws near to us, it makes us more and more aware of the fact that we aren't holy. And so attention is created in us. God is holy. We are not. How can he dwell with us and we feel comfortable about it? And so here's what we can do, especially in our culture today. We start to dial down God's holiness. To make us feel more comfortable about God being near, let's turn down the holiness. God really isn't that holy. We can talk about his love and his grace and his mercy, which yes and amen to all those things as we're gonna see here in a second. But the moment we start talking about holiness, yeah, maybe not so much. And how that holiness challenges us, pushes on us, reveals the darkness in our own hearts and the sin in our own lives and the brokenness of our world, we start to feel really uncomfortable and we don't always know what to do with that. And so we either back up don't want any more of that, or let's just make 
God less holy because that just, it's easier to deal with. Far more comfortable when we do that. But here's the problem. When we do that, when we turn down the holiness of God, when we de-emphasize that God dwells with us in holiness, we are actually de-emphasizing why it is good news that God dwells with us. Because if God doesn't bring the fullness of his holiness, which is his goodness, his righteousness, his truth, his light, his grace, and his mercy, if he isn't bringing the fullness of all of that, we have no hope. If he does not bring the fullness of that, do you know what is more powerful? Sin, brokenness, evil, wickedness. If God does not, the bring, does not bring the fullness of his holiness, no matter how uncomfortable that may make us, there's no hope. There's no hope for us. So you begin to see why the ark is the most important piece of furniture. Well, within the tabernacle, within the house that Israel was to build, the, the ark was the throne of the Lord, the, the place where he sat. It was the best seat in the house, the most important seat in the house. This is why, when the, and we'll see this in a couple of weeks, the tabernacle had an inner chamber, the holy of holies that only the high priest could enter into. This is why the ark went there the most sacred spots, because this is the throne room of God. This is the very throne of God. The best seat in the house, the throne of God, the ark emphasizing God dwelling with his people in holiness. And as much as this makes us feel uncomfortable, as much as we wrestle with this, there's a sense in which it is good for us to do that. Like we should. We, we, we shouldn't try to just automatically eliminate the tension, right? Like we, we shouldn't, if we, if we try to just eliminate the tension, then we pass over the important piece here. There, there is a real sense when God's holiness draws near, it should make us feel uncomfortable because we should be honest and recognize we are sinful. We are sinful. We are in rebellion. We are not holy like the Lord is. God is different. He is highly exalted above us. Like that, all of that should just, we should tremble at that idea. But how, so, but how is it? How is it that a holy God can be near? If God is holy, if we are not, how is it that God can actually dwell near his people? And this is where the ark brings the other piece of the good news. The mercy seat. Did you notice that? The throne that God sits on, it's a mercy seat. It's a mercy throne. The word mercy seat in the Hebrew, it literally translates atonement seat or atonement covering. This is the place where once a year the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies with the blood of a sacrificed bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat as atonement for the sin of the people. Sprinkle it on the seat where God would exercise his mercy. The throne that God sits on, it is a holy throne. It is holy, yes, but it's a mercy seat. God comes in his holiness to us. God comes in the fullness of his goodness and his righteousness and his truth and his beauty. But in that, he comes as a merciful God. When Moses asks to see the Lord, in a few chapters, we're gonna see this. And the Lord passes by Moses. He's gonna say, I'm just gonna show you my goodness because you can't see my face. What does the Lord declare? The Lord, the Lord, gracious, merciful, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Like what does God want you to understand about him? Yes, he's holy, but also he's merciful. And it's because of his mercy that we can draw near. It's in his mercy that he draws near to us through the atonement, the sacrifice, the the, the dying of something else on our behalf. And what is mercy? Mercy is getting what we do not deserve. Through that atonement, we get what we don't deserve, which is what? Life, forgiveness, and the means by which to dwell near to God. So as much as the ark shows us holiness, it shows us that God reigns and he rules in mercy. He draws near to his people in mercy. And this is the ultimate point. A holy God dwells with his people through mercy. That is what the ark shows us. A holy God dwells with his people through mercy. So for Israel, for us, this tension, not necessarily resolved, but we're kind of at this place where we have a choice. Are we going to be stubborn and prideful and think we can approach God in and of ourselves and find ourselves face down or even dead? Are we going to run away and shy away? Are we gonna run into our sin and say, yeah, I'd rather have sin than God? I mean, we had these choices. Or are we going to see the mercy of God and run to that? Are we going to lean in to the provision that God has made? When you see the holiness of God displayed here in the ark, do not miss that that holiness is meant to draw you to the mercy seat. Where are the cherubim looking? Like you look at the details of this description. It gives you the box and the poles, but it's like everything is moving towards the central point. And you get a description of the, the cherubim and the angels and their wings and they're out, they're folded out and they're above. But then it says their faces are turned towards the mercy seat. When you look at the ark, the angels are telling you where to look. When you look at this beautiful structure inlaid with gold, holy and amazing, representing the throne room of God, here is where you're to look, at the mercy seat. There is where you will see God. There is where God meets with his people on a throne of mercy. Will we run to that mercy? Will we lean into that mercy? Will we trust in that mercy? Will we depend upon that mercy rather than our own performance? Rather than running back to our sin, will we run to the mercy that forgives us and sets us free and allows us to dwell with God? This is what the ark shows us about what it means to dwell with God and worship him. Now, the whole premise of the Raiders of the Lost Ark is that the ark has been lost to history. Like Indiana Jones going to find it before the Nazis, that, that whole premise is this idea. The ark, no one knows where the ark is. It's sort of this mysteriously hidden away and it's just become the stuff of myth and legend. And in fact, the ark has been lost to history. After the, the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and, and the temple in 586 AD, the ark is no longer mentioned in scripture as, as being present with Israel. It's no, it, it's no longer referenced in the Old Testament. And the only mentions in the New Testament, one is sort of in the past tense, and the other is part of a symbolic vision in the, in the book of Revelation. And so the question is, what happened to the ark? If the ark shows us all about what it means, all these things about what it means to dwell with God, that God is holy, that God is merciful, what happened to it? What role does it play? 
Well, depending on the conspiracy theory that you read, the ark is either somewhere in Egypt or it is being held by the Ethiopian Orthodox Church in Ethiopia, or some say it is in the basement of the Vatican. And there are some interesting stories. I think there's been multiple History Channel episodes on this. Like, it's fascinating. But here's what I would argue. It's all just fun myth. Like, it actually isn't getting at where the ark truly is. Where is the ark today? I'd argue that the ark no longer exists. Here's, the, here's why I'd make this argument. One, the prophet Jeremiah says that there's going to be one day where the ark is no longer needed and is actually forgotten about. Here's what he says in Jeremiah 3. In those days, and so those days meaning this day of restoration, this great day of the Lord when the, the Lord restores his people. He says, in those days, this is the Lord's declaration. No one will say again the ark of the Lord's covenant. It will never come to mind and no one will remember or miss it. Another one will not be made. At that time, Jerusalem will be called the Lord's throne and all the nations will be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord in Jerusalem. They will cease to follow the stubbornness of their evil hearts. So this great day of restoration when all the people are going to come to the Lord. Where is the Lord's throne? It's not on this ark. It's in the city of Jerusalem. This great picture of the Lord ruling and reigning over all the earth. And so the ark has passed from history because the point of the ark, the usefulness of the ark, the time of the ark has gone. The ark, as we see, is a shadow. It's a copy. Well, what's interesting is that when, when Israel go, leaves exile, when they're, when they're released from exile to go back to Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple, you see this in the book of Nehemiah, in the book of Ezra, they rebuild the temple and they make the sacrifices. At the first temp- when the first temple was built by Solomon and they have the sacrifices, the spirit of the Lord descends on the temple. When they build the second temple, nothing. And also in the first temple, this is where they put the Holy of Holies, or they put the Ark in the Holy of Holies. In the second temple, nothing. I contend that when, Israel, or excuse me, when Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed by Babylon, the Ark was destroyed as well. It was a sign of judgment on Israel. It was a sign of judgment on God's people for their sin. And so that whole infrastructure, that whole system was brought down. But God, through the prophets, kept saying, there's gonna be a day of restoration. There's gonna be a day of salvation. A Messiah is coming. So there was always this hope of restoration, always this hope of restoration. But as Jeremiah said, that when that restoration comes, there's not gonna be an ark. That shadow, that copy is going to pass away. Something greater is going to be present. So I don't believe the ark still exists because we've come to that place where the shadow and the copy have passed away and the greater has come. Listen to how the author of the book of Hebrews connects the dots for us. Hebrews 9, 1 through 5. Now the first covenant also had regulations for ministry and an earthly sanctuary. So here, the author of the book of Hebrews is just kind of going over a summary of the, the back end of Exodus here. For a tabernacle was set up and in the first room, which is called the holy place, where the lampstand, the table, and the presentation loaves, and Pastor Paul is going to talk about those next week. Behind the second curtain was a tent called the most holy place. It had the gold altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered with gold on all sides, in which was a gold jar containing manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. So this passage 
it's not entirely clear whether it's saying the, the manna and Aaron's staff are actually in the, were placed in the ark later or they're just next to the ark, but they were in the Holy of Holies. The cherubim of the glory were above the ark overshadowing the mercy seat. So he's just like running down, hey, this is what was in the tabernacle. This is what was set up. Then he continues. With these things prepared like this, the priests enter the first room repeatedly performing their ministry but the high priest alone enters the second room where the ark is and does that only once a year and never without blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. So he's just talking about the sacrificial system when the ark was part of the religious worship and the function that it had. This is where atonement was made for the people. Now catch this. The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. This is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. What he's talking about here is the fact that the high priest had to go in year after year after year showed something. It showed that those sacrifices did not completely take away sin. It did not completely cleanse the conscience and renew hearts. Rather, it was provisional. Rather, it was meant to be sort of a placeholder to create a category in the mind of God's people that, hey, this atonement needed to be made, but the atonement of blood, of the, the blood of bulls and goats wasn't it. It was preparing the way for something else, something greater. Shadow and copy pointing to something greater. The ark had a temporary purpose. The sacrifice, the atonement made on the ark had a temporary purpose. It was meant to point to something greater. And the reason we know this is because it had to happen over and over and over and over again. However, that greater thing that the ark was pointing to has come. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in verses 11 through 14. But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. In the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He's talking about the heavenly thing that the tabernacle was made a copy of. Christ has gone to the heavenly tabernacle. He entered the most holy place once for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our conscience from dead works so that we can serve the living God? Let's put these, pictures, these pieces together. The ark existed in a he- an earthly tabernacle, a copy, a shadow of the heavenly. The high priest entered into this holy of holies on earth before the ark and sprinkled blood on the ark, an earthly reality, an earthly construction. What did Jesus do? Jesus sacrificed his blood, and where did he take that blood? Not to the earthly temple, not to the earthly ark, not to the earthly holy of holies, but to the heavenly. He went to the reality, the thing that it was copied off of, and he did it once for all. The thing that the ark pointed to was fulfilled and accomplished through Jesus Christ. The the, the redemption, the, the, the means by which God could dwell with his people, 
was accomplished by Jesus Christ once and for all. So if we consider, why does the, why does the ark not exist? Now, I'll just say this, just for sake of argument. Let's say someone did find the true ark. How would I respond to that? I'd be like, that's a really cool artifact. I can't wait to look at it in a museum. But here's what I'd also say. You see that? Shadow. Copy. What's the reality? Christ. It wouldn't change a thing about the way we do what we do. It wouldn't change a thing about our salvation. It might make a good argument for those that don't believe in the Bible, but it had no place in our worship. Why? Shadow. Copy. The substance, the reality has come. Christ, once for all, making sacrifice. No more need for a sacrifice. And here's what else is great about this. The purification. Our souls are actually made pure. We're actually given the righteousness of Christ. We're actually made holy. And here's the beauty of that. In the Old Testament, you could only go in the, only the high priest could go in the Holy of Holies and once a year. Through Jesus Christ, what has happened that holy of holy, that curtain when Christ died, what happened? Torn in two. What does that mean? We all enter the holy of holies. No more close but too close. Only close. Through Christ. So what does Christ show us? How does Christ bring into relief more brightly what the, what the ark showed us? It's this. One, that God is indeed holy. God is indeed holy. Jesus died because God is holy. God does not minimize sin. He does not Look at sin as no big deal. No, through Jesus Christ, God has dealt with sin. He's dealt with it once and for all. Through Jesus Christ, we are brought near to God. We can dwell with him. We can be close to him, forgiven of all of our sins, cleansed so that we can now live for him. And so the holiness that the ark shows us, Christ doesn't turn down the volume on that holiness. No, he turns it up because no, no one less than Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had to die for us. The Holy One of God had to die for us so that we could be forgiven. But it also shows the great mercy of God. No one less than the Son of God died for us. What extent does God have mercy for us? He sent his Son. The thing most precious to him, he sent him and Jesus willingly came and died for us. We see the holiness of God and we see the mercy of God in our salvation. So church, the ark will always point us to Christ. It will point us to the holiness of God. It will point us to the fact that we are sinners and we are in need of redemption and that redemption has been provided for us through Jesus Christ. So listen, our response to this is not just to go, hey, cool story cool little artifact, cool little bit of history. First, we should respond to this by taking the holiness of God seriously. We should recognize our tendency to want to turn the dial down on it, to back away from it. Well, we also want, need to recognize our tendency to deal with the holiness of God through our own performance. We think God is holy and so I got to perform for him and so maybe, just maybe, I'll be good enough for him to like me. Or we pretend and we hide and we act as if we have it all together when we really don't. And so we become self-righteous pretenders. And so when we look at the holiness of God, those are not the ways that we need to respond. Because on the one hand, we can never perform enough and pretending will only kill you. Also, we need holiness of God. As I said before, 
The holiness of God is God's goodness and his righteousness and his truth and his beauty. The righteousness of God is what brings life. The righteousness of God is what is going to save us from the wickedness and the evil of this world and restore and renew all things. We should want the volume on God's righteousness and holiness turned up. We should want it turned up. But in turning it up and us seeing our sin, we need to run to the mercy of God. Rather than pretending, rather than performing, rather than trying to do it on our own, we run to what Christ has done. We run to the provision of Christ. We run to the blood of Christ. We run to the power of Christ. And in that, we experience the mercy of God. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the power of the gospel. And then what happens when we experience the power of God in our lives? We're forgiven. We're set free. We're made holy. We draw near to God. We're in relationship with him. But now we have the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in holiness, to walk in goodness, to walk in righteousness, to walk in love, to walk in truth, to walk in beauty. All those things that are good news for us in our world. Like we should want to walk in holiness because walking in holiness, that means that our community, this church community, is gonna be a community of love and of grace and of truth and of righteousness and of forgiveness and kindness. And then we go and we walk in, in holiness in our world, it means we're gonna bring that truth and that goodness and that righteousness and that kindness and that gentleness and mercy and grace, all of those things to our world and our world is desperately in need of that. So the holiness and the mercy of God They show us the way to salvation and they also show us what it means to be near God and these things are good news for us. And so church, a holy God dwells with his people through mercy. And so let us be a people who look at the holiness of God, depend upon his mercy and be transformed by his power to go and walk as a holy people who follow him. For the glory of God, and for the good of others.